Well, good morning, y'all. The snow would be uh, beautiful this morning if it wasn't such a stinking long winter, but nothing pretty about it now. Um, so we're in the final weeks of a series we've uh, entitled The Story of God, <clears throat> and we've been studying really how God has revealed himself throughout history, according to the Bible, and really trying to understand better um, who he is and a little bit more about his character, because I think we all have preconceived ideas about God, right? When we say the word God, we all get different pictures in our heads, and whether it comes from the way that we were raised, I mean, we're all influenced by different things, right? So whether it's the way we were raised from our parents, the our parents' portrayal of God, or some church experience that we've had, or even the TV, for that matter. We can get you know, a lot of different influence that shapes um, our ideas about God. And so, you know, some, so some common ideas um, that people have of God is, you know, one view is that he's like a heavenly Santa Claus for, you know, that he's like the big grandpa in the sky and he loves everybody and punishes no one and everybody should monetarily prosper and all good gifts come from God. So this view of God emphasizes his love, but it completely ignores the justice that we also read in the Bible. Another idea looks like God as if he were a policeman, right? He's the big fun buster in the sky, and he's looking to catch us doing something wrong. And so this view focuses in on the law, the do's and don'ts, the the rules of, of Christianity. But This viewpoint ignores the idea that God wants us to have a Makarios life, right? An abundant life, a blessed life. And then another view of God, and you pick up on this really from some of the Old Testament stuff, is that he is like an angry judge. He is like a big angry God demanding justice, and he is ticked off at all sinners, and anybody that crosses him, he's going to throw them into the pits of hell. And that's another viewpoint that a lot of people have of God. Um, Whatever is your view of God, I hope that from the weeks that we've spent building this series and studying the historical perspective, that we come to this conclusion. He's way more complicated than even all that. That his ways are beyond our ways, and it's very... There's times when we just really don't understand who God is, and so that's where the faith comes in. I mean, we really have have seen his frustration with mankind at times throughout history because of the disobedience against God has prevailed with mankind since the beginning of time. But in direct contrast, we've seen a God who has stuck it out with us, a God who has stood by our side and throughout history, has maintained his presence in our lives because of his radical love for us. And then, I think that when you look at the character of God, then that there is this tension inside of God where you have the God of love and you have the God of judgment. You have the Elohim God who is the all-powerful creator who could you know, destroy the earth at his command at the snap of a finger. 
But you also have the Yahweh God who cares enough about us personally that he knows us by name and he answers our prayers. And so this morning, what I want to look at is how God resolves all that. How at the end of the day, we discover who he really is. That how God will reveal himself at the end so that when we walk out of this world and into the next, what God will we find there? If we were to die tonight and we were to stand before God on that day of judgment, what God do you have in your head that you would encounter there as you stand before him and have to give an account of your life? So it's a little disconcerting when we think about the world coming to an end and, and uh, the last days and whatnot. And so as we look at how the Bible says that the story of God will end, which by that we mean at the end of the world, we have a very limited amount of information. And from what little we do know, there's some pretty fascinating stuff that we'll just touch on this morning. And... Um, when I think about the world coming to an end, there is no picture more sobering than the image of Jesus as in Matthew 25 where he describes uh, Judgment Day and what that's going to be like. So in Matthew 25 it says, When Jesus comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now, I don't know about you, but I can tell you already, I don't want to be no goat. So, then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me. You who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, if we just take this from the perspective of God, I imagine in my head that this is the moment that God has been dreading ever since the creation of the first man in the Garden of Eden. That moment when God is faced with this ridiculously tragic task of separating people out in order to sentence them to heaven or to hell. Now, the truth is, for a lot of us, that the thought of heaven doesn't really inspire us to like want to be great in our faith. It's, I think it's probably because it's just so hard to imagine, right? I mean, for me, at least, the struggle is not so much whether heaven exists or not. It's, am I going to be bored up there? Right? I mean, sometimes I think, what are we going to be doing all that time? No masters, no Game of Thrones. Like, how are we passing the time for all of eternity? Some preachers make it sound like it's going to be an eternal worship service. Right? And so I think, oh, great. So we're going to sing all 55 verses of when the roll is called up yonder. 
And then on to the next hymn, and then on to the next. And I go, you know, I love singing, but really, I've had enough. So I just think that we are more motivated in our faith by our fear of hell, whether consciously or unconsciously, um, than we are by our desire for heaven because we just can't conceive of it. And really, we don't hear a lot about hell um, very much anymore because it's really quite so scary. Uh, And it's not politically correct. And so the hellfire and brimstone sermons of old that I used to hear at the revival meetings at Central Christian Church in Harvey, Illinois, where I grew up, those days are gone. And we have a different type of sermons now. And, but I will say that, you know, there was a very famous sermon, the most famous sermon of all times was by a preacher by the name of Jonathan Edwards in 1741. And it was entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, if that doesn't inspire you, I don't know what will. But it's portraying God as like this angry judge who is dangling people over the pits of hell as a way to get them to repent or to live right just before he sentences all of the rest of the sinners permanently into the eternal fire once and for all. Now, let me tell you, when that preacher gave an invitation at the end of the sermon, he didn't have any problem with people coming forward to accept Jesus because they all, he scared the hell out of them, but I'll tell you what, that's right. But if you're like me, you think to yourself, how can a loving God do that? Right? If we just stop for a second and go, we hear that this is a God of love. How can a loving God throw billions of people into hell for the rest of eternity? The real question, I think, is, is it really God's fault if that person doesn't go to heaven? Is God ultimately the one who should be held responsible for that? And if that person doesn't end up going to heaven, does it make God any less compassionate or merciful or loving? From my interpretation of the Bible... God has revealed himself to be not a fear-based God, but a relational one. He does not want us to be motivated in a relationship with him out of a fear of hell. He wants us to be motivated in a relationship with him out of love. The fact that it says that because he loved us, then we love him. So God's view is, if he loves us enough, eventually we will love him back. And so if the Bible teaches that we have a God who is an angry judge, who wants justice, and we also have a God who is a God of love, who wants to spend the rest of eternity with us and wants that no one go to hell, and if the entrance requirement to get into heaven is that we have to be sinless or perfect, and we also read in the Bible that none of us are perfect or sinless, then how do you resolve all that? I think it comes down to just one word. Grace. I want to illustrate this morning for you how I think that grace solves all of this tension and apparent contradiction that we find in the Bible. So, let's just say that My hand represents me 
Darren Sloniger, who is a sinner. And let's just say that this Bible represents the sin in my life. Right? So here's me. Here's my sin. It's a big Bible because i got plenty of sin, brothers and sisters. So, God, the God of love, loves me, the sinner. However, the God of justice, who is the just judge, who said, I will not let the guilty go unpunished, he hates the sin in my life. But that same God, the God of all that, resolved the issue of sin by making it possible to remove my sin from my life once and for all. So he sent his son into the world, Jesus, to die on a cross for our sin, so that whoever believes in him would not be sentenced to hell. But instead, he has caused the sin of us all to fall on him, leaving us what? Perfect. Sinless. All of a sudden, we can stand before God on judgment day. Sinless. Not because of anything we've done. We've screwed it up pretty good. But because of what Jesus did for me. And when it comes down to it, we have a choice, right? We can either allow our sin, because we know that sin keeps us separated from God. That's what stands in between us and God. And so if we never deal with this sin, it will keep us separated from God, not only in this life, but also in the next. And if we never deal with it, it will always keep us separated from God. What makes us believe that if we reject God in this life, why would we be so surprised that we would be rejected by him in the next? You see, hell, by its very definition, whatever it ends up being, hell at its core is the place where God is not. And so if we've made a decision to not live with God in this world, then we're making a decision to not live with God in the next. And there's just two choices of where we end up, with God or without Him. I believe that God does not willy-nilly send anybody to heaven or to hell. I think we choose to accept His grace or we choose to reject it. And I don't think that's on God. He made the rules, he set up the universe, but it's up to us to decide how we're going to play it. You see, I think that Christianity levels the playing field more than any other religion in the world, so that nobody can ever think of themselves as any better than anybody else. Christianity is the most inclusive faith that I know. No matter what color your skin is or isn't, no matter how much money you have or don't have, no matter how badly you have screwed up your life or how bad you think the sin in your life is, it doesn't matter. We are all in the same bucket. We all are in need of Jesus and His grace. And we have a choice. We can accept it or we can reject it. There's a a little known passage in 1 John that I think describes what Judgment Day looks like for those of us who have given their life to Jesus. And in 1 John chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is now a pretty old man, and he writes these words. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But 
The reality is, if anybody does sin, we have an advocate. An advocate with the Father, who is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he is the atonement for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. There's two words that I want to draw your attention to there in this passage. The first word is atonement. He is the atonement for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the entire world. The Greek, the the New Testament was written in Greek, and so it's great just to dig down in terms of understanding what the author's intention were by looking at the original Greek word. And the original Greek word for atonement is halasmos. This has the idea of this is an offering that is there to appease or satisfy an angry party seeking justice. Hmm. This word is used only twice in the Bible. The second time is also in 1 John, but in chapter 4, in verse 10, where it says, and this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So let me just be really clear about this. An atoning sacrifice is referring to the fact that the God of justice is seeking payment for the wrongdoing that we have made in our lives, that we have done. And the atonement is when Jesus dies on the cross for our sins, he has paid our debt in full, he's paid the price. Second word in that passage I want to draw your attention to is the word advocate. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, who is Jesus Christ. The Greek word there is parakletos, and it has the idea of a legal situation. That the advocate is a legal advocate, like an attorney, who stands up in court in our defense. So now, to me... This is like this beautiful, hopeful image of Judgment Day. Because it is implying that as we are standing there before the God of justice, who is sitting on the bench demanding justice, and as we are standing in front of God, the judge, giving an account of our lives, pleading guilty to the charge of sin, just before the judge drops the gavel, and sentences us to death, Jesus stands up. Jesus stands up. And he defends us. And he gets up and he says, Yep, judge, that's all true. Darren was a complete jerk during those times. I don't even know what he was thinking. However, I have already paid the price for his pitiful self, and he's mine. And so now, when the judge drops the gavel, he says, all right, you're guilty, but my son got you. He's already paid the price. You're now free to go into my heavenly realms. And I just think in that moment that God is almost giddy with excitement because another person has committed their life to him and followed his plan and been set free so that he does not have to sentence another person to death. And when we walk into that new world, into the heavenly realms, 
There is no better description of what that's like than in the book of Revelation, where it's also the Apostle John who says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and and there was no longer any sea. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Ah. Now, when you go back and look at all the things that we've been studying over the last several weeks in in the story of God, it all makes sense, right? God's desire from the beginning, we've seen it. He wants to dwell with us. He wants to have his presence to be with us. He wants to live in the midst of us. And so when it says that now, finally, in the end, his dwelling is now among his people. It's not in the tabernacle. It's not in the temple. It's with all of us. It's like the fulfillment of all the work that God has done that has led him to this point where finally we are now together to fu- in the fulfillment of his plan for the rest of eternity. And so while we may not know what to expect heaven will be like, we know one important thing. Heaven is the place where God is. And if heaven is the place where God is, I don't care if I'm singing 55 verses of when the roll is called up yonder. I want to be there. In Revelation, it goes on, it says, And then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, and the leaves of the tree are for healing of the nations. And no longer will there be any curse. This is an obvious reference to the Garden of Eden. And I imagine things to end as they began. The way that it was intended to be from the beginning, before we screwed it all up. We're now back on plan. Right? God has now created the Garden of Eden 2.0. And he calls it heaven. Even more beautiful than anything that we could ever imagine. And it doesn't even matter what we can imagine is the most beautiful place because when he speaks of heaven, he says that it'll be this incredible place where he will wipe every tear from our eyes. And there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. You see, the story of God is really quite simple in its complexity. God loves us beyond belief. He loves us so deeply, in fact, that he gave us a choice. Rather than forcing himself on us, he gives us a choice whether or not we want to love him back. And from Genesis to Revelation, we read God's passionate pursuit of us doing everything that he can to make it possible for us to want to choose him, love him, 
follow him. The part that I can't believe, I can't believe that if we have a God who loves me like that, why I still have to fight and to struggle to keep my passion for God alive. If I have a God who has pursued me like that, who has done everything that he can, why I lose all perspective and reject God over and over and over again in my life. I think that it's not until we finally get that life is nothing more than a blip on a screen in the scheme of eternity that we can finally begin to see life differently. To see God differently. To live differently. More meaningfully. More passionately. Because on that day, the Bible says that when our life comes to an end and we are finally in the place where we have overcome all the junk of this world and we've crossed the finish line of this life with our faith left intact and we're standing there in front of the creator of the universe, Elohim, we don't have to fear because our Yahweh takes our hand and says don't worry my son got you and as he puts his arm around us you can hear him almost whisper come now into the place that I have prepared for you since the beginning of time I think you're going to like it. I've been waiting a long time to show you. It's a place where there is no more death. There's no more crying. No more pain. 